Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I'm Nil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. In this episode, I chat with David Greenfeld, an investment banker fueled by late night ice cream binges. David set out to create his own plant-based ice cream after noticing a lack of real ingredient-driven options in the vegan section of the frozen aisle. With David Cohen in August 2016, he launched Dream Pops, a plant-based dairy-free popsicle that is less than 100 calories, less than 5 grams of total sugar, and is powered by superfoods and adaptogens. Dream Pops are now in more than 400 stores, including Whole Foods. The company also partners with brands such as Don Julio, Soho House, and Starbucks to offer limited edition flavors given out at events or pop-ups. This is David Greenfeld and the Dream Pop Story. David Greenfeld from uh, Dream Pops, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Neil, thank you so much for having me. Pumped to be here. So yeah. Thank you. So how did you dream up this idea? <laughs> it is a wild, crazy roller coaster, but um, man, three years in now, it's wild to look back, but happy to kind of dive in and give you the inception from day one where this uh, where this really came from. So, Yeah, so your background is um, fairly interesting. Now, I meet a lot of people on this podcast and uh, featured many entrepreneurs who didn't have a food background, yet are doing really interesting, impactful things in the food industry. You are not that dissimilar. Um, but, you know, in researching your background and the work you've been doing, it sounds like you had this intention pretty early in your life and partly probably because of your parents that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and you wanted to build things. Is that an accurate assessment? That is, that is absolutely correct. Um, I think that just growing up with two parents who are themselves entrepreneurs, there's that celebration of new ideas, excitement, and testing, uh, radically testing ideas and not having that fear um, or that worry that you're going to be judged. Um, and when you grow up with that and you're conditioned with that, I think that that increases the probability of somebody becoming an entrepreneur and something that when I'm a parent, there's no question I'm going to challenge my kids to uh, kind of radically test all sorts of disciplines to really uh, go out and, and, and create something for themselves. Yeah, so what was the first thing you you created? And I think because, you know, whether it's a food company or if it's, uh, I, I say this often, whether it's a food company or a creative project, a book, a podcast, whatever it may be, it comes from a motivation to create something, to build something, to provide something new to the world that doesn't exist uh, what was your f first experiment with that? Yeah, so when I think back, you know, I definitely was doing like classic lemonade stand, baseball, basketball cards. Um, but you know, the real, the real first creative endeavors that I would say I tapped into was was hip hop and music. Um, I was a rapper uh, back in the day in high school and in college. Our rap name was Lifestyle. It was a hip hop <laughs> group. We traveled. Um, you know, performed at Berkeley up in San Francisco and Santa Barbara. Um, we did an EP and an album. And I just, you know, 
being a white Jewish rapper getting up on stage uh, requires a certain level of confidence. <laughs> um, and in retrospect, uh, you know, I still I, I love listening to the songs that we put out. It was uh, an incredible time. And that was the first real creative endeavor that I went all in on and had some fun with. Yeah. And you're in good company. We, ta- we chatted a bit about this before we hit record. But uh, Seth Goldman from Honesty love had a very similar background as a rapper himself in college. But uh, so you you already have a few things going for you with that. Uh, and then you tried a, a boxed wine business. That is correct. It was called Just Wine and ironically also geometric. So something in the geometric shapes uh, is, is something that I'm obviously I, I love and enjoy. Um, but my my real good buddy in college, Max Hinchman, shout out to Max. Um, his family was in the wine business and he approached me with an idea to kind of break the stigma associated with boxed wine. Uh, there's a large percentage of boxed wine drinkers in Australia. And we looked at the data and thought that alternative packaging and wine could be really interesting. So looked at cans and RTD and boxed wine alternatives. And so the idea we came up with in college was, uh, can we create the same Apple box unboxing of an iPhone experience with boxed wine to really break that stigma? There are a lot of uh, packaging benefits to boxed wine. It's in a bladder, it's grab and go, it's more cost efficient uh, for, you know, millennials. And so, um, you know, for better or worse, I'm actually grateful in retrospect because the spirits and wine industry is uh, close to impossible to, to <laughs> succeed in. So um, I do have a good story about about Just Wine. We did manage to get into three Whole Foods locations in the Bay Area. And when you create, when you fill your box wine, you fill the bladder, you got to make sure that there's no yeast in the bag or else the bag will actually explode. Um, so knowing very little about wine filling, uh, Max and I went to our winery, to his, to his, uh, you know, friend's winery who allowed us to, you know, basically fill up the bladders and there was a little bit of yeast in the bags. So, um, when we launched, we were so excited, we we're selling product. And then, you know, about a month later, the bags started to actually explode in store. Um, we were kicked out of Whole Foods in general. And, you know, that was my first reckoning with, um, we decided to, you know, discontinue the business. We're kind of blackballed from having product expire on shelf. And, that was my foray into the wine industry. <laughs> and did that not... So did you then walk away from that experience thinking, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't think the food and beverage industry is, is one for me? Or like, how do you not get discouraged by that? You were so close. You got into Whole Foods, which in itself yeah, it was, is an achievement. It was huge. And uh, here's a weird thing about me. I just love a like food and beverage, CPG. I've always like just followed uh, the various trends in consumer packaged goods. I've always loved living in grocery stores and staring at products and imagining products for myself, um, even have been so far as to read the Kraft Heinz handbook back in the day to learn how to build brands. So I've always had that affinity towards the space. Um, I think it was very discouraging. You know, we lost, I lost a lot of my bar mitzvah money that I put <laughs> into the business. Um, and I think the realization was, okay, um, A, do I really love wine? The biggest thing, the biggest realization was if I'm going to be building something, it needs to be a product that has a far larger like like value for myself and for others. I didn't love wine. I love the idea of solving a problem and building a brand. Um, and so that was one problem. Two, um, you know, it just wasn't something that really like tugged on my heartstrings and seemed like it was going to be something that I'd want to be building for three, five, ten years. And that was the biggest realization. These things take a lot of time to build. Um, and it was this, you know, I took it on the chin and I was like, you know what, I think I need to have some real corporate discipline here and train myself and get some real hands-on experience before I jump into something um, that I've never had any experience in. Yeah. So let's fast forward. I know you went into a career in investment banking for <clears throat> a bit and that took you to Italy. And um, how and when did you start to get interested in this idea that the ice cream or the frozen dessert category needed something better? Totally. So the reason for banking was a really the business dressed wine had 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 tanked and, and didn't work out and needed something a little bit more uh, disciplined. I felt like I needed a skill set and tools, the ability to really uh, understand finance, build financial models. And so I had a really unique opportunity to go work at Houlihan Loki. Um, and while there, it was all about I really tried to turn off that entrepreneurial side of me, which was challenging, um, but just get as good as I could at meeting with C-suite execs, building decks, looking at businesses and analyzing them from the top down, you know, really getting strong in Excel and, and with my modeling and, and understanding how businesses truly do operate and market themselves and scale. Um, 
and so that was one. And then, you know, two, where does ice cream fit into all this? Um, so, you know, late at night at my desk, um, I have a voracious sweet tooth. Absolutely love candy, sweets, ice cream, snacks. But I would eat haagen bars, pints of ice cream, all sorts of sweets at my cubicle late at night to just keep the time going, stay awake, um, and just, you know, stay engaged. And so after doing those 80 to 100-hour work weeks for months at, months at a time, you know, over you know, a couple of years, I started to really fatigue and feel um, like, you know, my body was hurting um, and I would, you know, have these crashes the next day. And so I started to get a little bit more thoughtful about wellness, working out and what I was consuming on a daily basis. And so I looked at these products and I was like, man, okay, let's, I decided actually to go fully vegan. So I went 100% vegan. I eliminated dairy and meat from my diet. I started being a little bit more thoughtful and I was like, man, I got to find something that's Mm going to replace this ice cream or, or ice cream bar habit. So it was a personal need. I started going to the grocery store and buying the plant-based options, the soy options, the almond options. I'm not going to name any brands, but there was, you know, there was, to to be frank, everything was really filled with sugars, had a bad chalky aftertaste, and didn't deliver on the most important attribute, which was taste, um, while simultaneously, you know, still having that better-for-you approach. And so um, I took it on myself when I get excited about something. This happened with wine as well. I'm like, okay, like ice cream's interesting. Why hasn't there been a ton of innovation here? So I just pulled as many research reports on the space as humanly possible. Anything on <clears throat> anything on confectionery, on ice cream, on the prior decades, history, the invention of ice cream or popsicles. And so <clears throat> I looked at um, the waves of innovation that had happened over the last five years, and there were a few that really stood out to me as uh, inspiring and kind of unique. And, um, you know, number one that really popped out to me was Kurt Jones, who invented Dippin' Dots. Mm. I actually reached out to him and sat with him and pitched him my initial idea before starting. And he has a wild story. Um, But what he did was he was able to uh, create a really unique form factor. They were vertically integrated, but the Dippin' Dots, I don't know, did you ever have Dippin' Dots as a kid? (laughs) So. Most people, when they had Dippin' Dots, they can remember the first time that they they really enjoyed it. For me, I was at Six Flags uh, at an amusement park, and they really did a great job of creating this emotional relationship with that customer. Most people remember where they consumed that Dippin' Dots product, and so in many ways, we try and emulate that relationship with the Dream Pop. But regardless, let's go back to that. So, um, you know, there was Dippin' Dots, which was a unique form factor. Then I read about Skinny Cow, which was really about a low-carb, low-fat ice cream sandwich and ice cream offering. Um, and then on the more recent side, studied Talenti, their first to market with that see-through pint and mm. their celebration of uh, artisanal gelato. Um, and then on the more recent side was seeing Arctic Zero, Halo Top, and Enlightened, who were betting on erythritol, low calories, and high protein. Um, and, you know, transitioning to plant-based, I knew that there had to be something coming that was more relevant to the uh, modern-day plant-based consumer. But then moving to Italy with the firm, um, you know, so Houlihan had acquired a company headquartered in Milan, and I actually moved out there and lived in Italy for two years. So being in the birthplace of gelato was a ton of inspiration while I was studying ice cream. Two was I looked around me, and culturally, um, Europe is all about portion control. Mm. They eat pasta dishes. They eat incredible foods, but they all are in fantastic shape. And you look at that and contrast it with American consumers. And the reason being is if you look at the portion sizings, they eat, they eat richer food, but it's all portion controlled. And so this, this idea in my mind was like, okay, you see plant-based coming, but portion control is also a unique um, you know, element that maybe there's a way you could fuse together uh, to have that next generation of whatever ice cream could be. And so serendipitously, I was eating at every gelato, I was researching the space, and I happened to come across a food scientist um, and a three-star Michelin chef who are working on a beta version of what Dream Pops is today. Um, I sat down with them, had tried this beta, um, was blown away, and you know, I kid you not, the second I tried it, I had a gut reaction and emotion. I called one of my best friends, Jeff Gendelman, and I said, dude, I think I found like this thing that I, I really want to do. And I didn't sleep all night. I actually stayed up and I wrote my list of everything I was going to accomplish for the next year to make this a reality. And then I phoned also my co-founder, David Cohen, uh, who we, we had been you know chatting about starting concepts. I'd been telling him about the ice cream research I was doing. I'm like, dude, I found it. We got to do this right now. So he quit his job. I said, I'm going to self-fund this thing. I'm going to like, we're going to mm-hmm. bring it. We're going to test it. I'm going to keep my job as a banker out here. Keep, you know, making sure I have recurring revenue to fund or income to fund this. We'll see if there's even a market here. 
And uh, and then, you know, shockingly, you know, David Cohen did an amazing job and we started to see some some real demand. And that's uh, when I quit my job. That's that's a that's a crazy story. That's a <laughs> I like that because it has so many different, you know, it, it starts with an inquiry. It starts with a need and then it goes down however further down it needs to go. And in most cases, people stop at the, I'm looking for a solution for myself, and, and, and maybe they find it or they don't find it, and it ends there. And I think it, it, I don't know, it sounds like you really, really wanted to find something, and you ended up stumbling upon this this formulation and this and the, and the folks in, in Germany, right? Yep. They were working on this. Uh, I'll, I'll give you my take on this as a consumer. Totally. I am, and I've said this before on the podcast, I am not the biggest ice cream fan. Yep. And not that I don't love ice cream. When I do eat ice cream, I enjoy it. But I obviously know it's not something I want to be consuming on a regular basis. Totally. Plus, since I've been plant-based, I have just generally not been impressed. And so over the years... And and I and I'm not just saying this because you're actually it is because you're on the podcast because if I hadn't experienced this I wouldn't have even reached out to you, so and I told you the story before we recorded but but this is the truth I was I I know I never buy ice cream, as a rule I never buy ice cream. That's okay. I, I go to a, is that because of the way it makes you feel or because of why like, I you don't like it I I. L- I don't want to consume excess sugar. So I go. when I okay. when I when I, I I like sugar, but I know it's not sugar doesn't like me. Okay. So <laughs> so over over the years I've, you know, I have this whole story when I first went plant-based, I was starting to I saw vegan donuts and I'd be like, I'm eating that even though I normally would not eat donuts. So I started making some bad food choices and then I kind of had to dial back and go in the complete opposite direction where I eliminated almost all sugar from my life um, and it worked wonders for me so then I became like this sugar like I'm, a, I'm an anti-sugar I, I, I only pick products that have minimal sugar in it and so I was, ha- I, was ha- I was in Whole Foods I think it was a few months yep. ago and um, out here in Venice and I had my uh, nephew and niece in town and my family visiting and uh, I wanted to they wanted popsicles and so I was looking to buy popsicles for them and I picked up some regular popsicles for them they're not plant-based I mean yeah popsicles which are all watery totally and and I found the good ones that were less bad and then I stumbled upon dream pops and I realized I'd seen it on Instagram I'd seen the design on Instagram (laughs) but I ignored it because it was an ice cream yeah and I'm not interested in ice cream yep and I was like dream pops and then I saw the flavor chocolate and lion's, lion's mane, and I'm a huge fan of functional mushrooms. And I was like, hmm. And I was like, this is the moment of truth. Turn it around. How much sugar does it have? Yep. And it said less than five grams of sugar. And I was like, worth trying. Yep. And it's plant-based. Um, it's probably going to taste like shit. Totally. I don't blame <laughs> you for thinking that. And I take it home, <laughs> and I tried it, and I, and this is true. I, had, I have never had ice cream in my freezer. Yeah. I had Dream Pops in my freezer because That's awesome. I was like, this is... And it wasn't too sweet. It had this like it had a it had a rich taste, but yet at the same time, like it fulfilled what I needed. And it's it was dense, sm- right? Yeah, you see the dense. size, and you're like, man, this is small, but at the same time, like it's it's filling. And like- here's the last thing I want to say about the de- of course the design's amazing, and we'll get into all of that. But to me, I love the way the the popsicle has got almost these three bites to it. Yep, <laughs> yep. So that was the kicker for me because it's like you feel like you're satisfied at the end of it. Uh, but at the same time, you don't feel like you've just eaten a whole pint of ice cream. So anyway, I, I wanted to make sure I say that yeah. because it is truly the honest experience I had with it. And of course, then I dug deeper into the company and uh, really understood what you were doing. And and I've been a fan since. And so I reached out to you saying, I really like your product. And like I can't believe I didn't know much about this until like you've been now three years into your business. So I just wanted to compliment you on the fact that I it's just n of one, but but if someone like me who typically doesn't buy ice cream was compelled to try your product, well, I, I think you could be onto something. Here I mean, I, that's incredible because you know it's one thing to have someone trade over from their typical ice cream purchase, but for a consumer to literally mm-hmm. jump out of their uh, their their habitual purchasing decisions to do something to try something new. That's that's the whole thing. Is in my mind, you know, there's a popsicle, but then what I see is kind of our next gen ice cream bar, a functional frozen bar, and that's into frozen snacking. So the same way that Perfect Bar 
reimagined refrigerated snacking, I think there's a resurgence and an opportunity to rethink frozen snacking. And so that's kind of where the the idea is is, is sitting now. Yeah. So it, what I like, and I want to mention this about as you recounted your story, is the the willingness to find a solution outside of yourself. So, I'll, so in other words, what I'm saying is you didn't start formulating a product yourself. You tried to find someone else who was doing something great. And did they already have this, this 3D mold and the design? Yes, and I will never you know, say that I, I did not create it. Um, mm-hmm. And if you actually look at a lot of uh, companies, that's that you know, I'm not a food scientist, um, and so in no way, shape, or form is that the reality. It's what happens when you bring together partners um, who have their own specialties and abilities and capabilities to really, you know, Build a business, yeah. And so, what? Let's get into the the product itself, right? So, fast forward now. You've 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 discovered this. You've gotten started. You were funding it yourself, and this is the early days of the product. Walk me through some of the decisions that were made about the the design the design partly, and may have, it may have existed before you got involved, but also the flavors and what were the different. Um, ingredient choices that you made and how much of them were already made prior to you finding the product or was something that you worked on with them? Yeah, so it was two prior, uh, like the berry and the mango. Uh, the, the three new flavors, vanilla matcha, chocolate lion, and coconut latte uh, were new. Um, the idea is, you know, we thought about the values of the company. Like, number one, we were never going to use erythritol. Um, it had to really be about naturally sweetening the And what's product. wrong with erythritol? There's nothing wrong with erythritol. A lot of products have it on shelf. It's just a matter of using a sugar alcohol versus an, an all-natural sugar to sweeten the product. It was a choice we made out the ingredient stack. Um, you know, some people, there are articles, I don't want to knock erythritol because mm-hmm. it's very prevalent, but some people do have issues digesting that sugar alcohol. And so uh, I personally don't really like the taste of it. It has a weird aftertaste. It affects the product. So in my mind, that's where hurting product integrity was never something we were going to do, even for a net-net functional benefit. Yeah, because it's, you know, one of the things that I, the problem with desserts, the problem with, with the anything sweet, it's, it's bad for you. Yep. And so how do you make it taste like a dessert? It has to be sweet. But at the same time, not compromise on flavor and then not end up with a product that's actually going to be terrible for people's health in the long run. And I think, is it is it you had a real sugar in it, but you were going to have less? We said we were going to use coconut. We, so we used mm-hmm. coconut sugar over cane sugar, which is lower on the glycemic index. It's a cleaner sugar. And so that was what we thought was the best option. Still do. We're, we are experimenting with monk fruit, um, which adjusts, changes the taste a mm-hmm. bit. But it was back to that idea, okay, we are going to use a clean sugar. We're not going to like say that we're zero sugar. We're not. That's, that's not who we are. But it's back to portion control moderation. We're going to use a little bit of sugar. And the natural sugars that come from the fruit to still deliver on taste while not over-promising to our customer that this is absolutely no sugar and that they're making a sacrifice by buying us. Yeah. And so you, what about the other ingredients? You chose coconut milk as a base. Coconut um, milk as a base over almond milk or oat milk. I mean, we are experimenting with both now, and we will be probably extending into others. Coconut is just something that I've consumed forever. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and the food scientists and formulators that we had worked with, that was in our belief as a team, we, we, we believed in the long-term health benefits of coconut milk over most other products. It also provides the best consistency for the product. Almond isn't necessarily as consistent and smooth uh, as a coconut. Yeah. And so you were still employed at that point when you were starting to to kind of launch and, and you started the company. Um, one thing that I find really another another interesting thing in your story is that you didn't do the typical thing. Uh, so the typical thing to do in such cases is to find a co-manufacturer, and perhaps your product was unique and you couldn't do it. Maybe that's the reason. And secondly, you didn't um, you didn't jump to retail as your first option. You started to do something that was I, I frankly have not seen done. I've seen it done, but <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you did you did brand collaborations. You almost used yeah. the used the you, you used the ice cream as a platform for for, for advertising. That's so exactly explain right. that. <laughs> yeah, honestly, it's not like this was f- like fully baked. Um, to be real, it was more so 
okay, we have this really unique product. We're capable of, you could actually, we could 3D print the mold and create any shape or design in the mold. And so when I was thinking, and what we were thinking as a team was like, wow, we can create any shape of the mold. This has got to be really interesting to big brands who might want their own ice cream. And then we're like, well, we're also making the product so we could go pitch uh, a brand and say, hey, what custom formulation or flavor or formula do you want? And so I kid you not, you know, I started pitching hundreds of brands with and what do I do in banking I put together pitch decks mm. so it was a very natural oh maybe I'll take the formula of a pitch deck of pitching businesses to acquire companies and start pitching these brands on and to be honest I could I could format something that looked pretty presentable and professional so I'd put these decks together and I had this amazing freelance designer and I would say hey Apple Beats by Dre we can create a custom Beats by Dre logo dream pop your own flavor and formula. We're going to do a pop-up bar and create collateral. We're going to staff it. And this is our experiential marketing activation. And so we started one, they were our first big client and it was a huge success and we captured the content and then used that as our credibility to open up Patron, SoulCycle, uh, Nike, big brands, and then use that you know, effectively something else we were doing is we always wanted to say, look, we're more than happy to create a custom formulation, but it is it in, in inherently is going to be a co-brand. It's going to be Dream Pops by Beats by Dre, mm-hmm. Dream Pops by Bumble, whatever it might be. And so the reason, the reasoning too, everyone was like, why don't you just go sell in the grocery store? Why don't you go just go to retail, go to Whole Foods? The thing that I knew day one and that me and David Cohen knew day one is if we just launched a popsicle on the shelf, with no digital presence, no story, no narrative, no brand recognition, we were going to die on the grocery shelf. I don't care who's backing you, who's pushing you, to just launch a product why, you know, in, in multiple retail doors without any sort of a presence or you know, following is one of the more high-risk things that you can do unless you're creating a category. Mm. So there's a combination of, while these brands are paying us, we can create real cash flow to continue fueling the business, that just kind of happened naturally. We tripled down on that. We're like, wow, we're actually building a brand for ourselves and people love this product. Amazing. Maybe there's some product market fit here. Then we would use their their purchases to test different packaging. So, you know, we're doing different types of packaging, 10-pack trays, little pouches going on U-line, uh, using all sorts of unique see-through bags. People thought the bags looked like weed bags. You know, you name it, we would put stickers on. We would use different sticker manufacturers. So effectively, we're able to partner with these brands to fuel innovation. And then finally, after about two, a year and a half of, of literally myself and David popping up, telling the story to every single one of these communities and, and brand partnership opportunities, we'd be in these coveted retail environments where we're pitching our brand. And eventually we're like, look, the experiential marketing business is great, but we want to build a, a food and beverage company. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had enough cash flow and momentum and excitement where retailers started to approach us, and then we said, okay, we need to really figure out how we're going to take this to market. Yeah. Did you worry in that process uh, where you were getting other companies, whether it's uh, Casamigos or Lululemon or someone else to slap their logo onto your product, that someone else would come along and notice what you were doing and basically do the same thing and go to market before you? Yes. Um, You mean like going to retail before us? I think that Look, we're not the first people to do collaborations. Everyone mm-hmm. does collaborations. Yep. What I do think we did differently is because we're vertically integrated, we could create an experience for these brands that I still believe is, you know, top level and very differentiated. With frozen ice cream in general, which is already an interesting brand to be a uh, concept or category to be doing collaborations with. I actually think this is a lot harder with oatmeal or protein bars to do a collaboration. There's something special about ice cream that's like this ice cream social. It's a temporary mm. product that melts. You can create an event around ice cream. Mm-hmm. There aren't, you can't create an event around pasta. I mean, you can, but it's just not the same. I think the way we've been conditioned is there's this fun, loving, you go to the ice cream shop and, and enjoy yourself and, and have some fun. And so we found a way to take ice cream and, and I guess create an experiential marketing, uh, you know, uh, campaign or activation around it. Um, but back to your question, yeah, we were constantly worried people people were going to rip us off. That's why, you know, we made sure to get a, a design patent on the shape. With, mm. That was one, like have some IP here so that people can't, people are still knocking us off and, and tweaking it. But it was back to, if we can align with the best brands that share our values that are going to really, you know, back us and believe in us, then eventually enough brand equity will be built here that we'll have a real community and a real chance of succeeding in retail. 
And you also are right at the fact that you are able to then create this story. You create this, you're creating the brand image where you get to choose who you want to partner with and that you end up sort of absorbing, literally, in the product also, figuratively, you start to absorb their brand equity into yours. So if you're at a party uh, where you people are consuming or interacting with uh, a popsicle in the shape of a, a Beats headphone, uh, now now they've they've tasted your product and they have that that halo of goodness added to it from from whatever brand you've partnered with think of it as like you know the way that consu- cpg companies uh create product discovery moments is typically through sampling in the grocery store mm-hmm. the problem with sampling in the grocery store is there are literally tens of thousands of other products that you're competing against and you're not going to create that memorable moment. And so I mm. mentioned to you that the reason Dippin' Dots and Kurt Jones was so interesting, he created a memorable ice cream moment in an alternative retail environment, amusement parks. So much in the same way that he bottled that unique nostalgic moment, we were trying to do that with people who might discover our product when they're at a Soul Cycle event, at a Lululemon event, at Soho House. Um, they're discovering an interesting CPG brand in an environment where they otherwise wouldn't. Mm. And because of that are potentially impacted, which maybe, I mean, even you mentioned with your experience, you saw us on Instagram. Mm -hmm. It's all about finding a way to gain mindshare and communicate with your customer and finding, you know, what I've heard is you actually need to interact with someone like six to seven times from a consumer psychology perspective to actually gain some mindshare, whether that's billboard advertising, you know, sponsor paid advertising, paid spend on Instagram or Facebook, in real life pop-ups or activations, you know, podcasts. You need to think from an omnichannel perspective, mm-hmm. how are you going to gain the mindshare of the customer? And that's one of the strongest ways that we found we could. And I think that's the part that you get really well because, um, you know, on the surface, when you tell someone it's a popsicle, like actually, if six months ago, before I tried your product, before I even learned about your company, if someone said, "Well, there's this there's this vegan plant based popsicle company," you should talk to them. On the surface, it sounds kind of terrible. Dull. <laughs> when people, so it's funny. The first twelve months of the company, when we were starting, you know, people like for me and David, you know, my partner, my co-founder. Um, you know, everyone be like, oh, yeah, I think, you know, David David went crazy. He's selling popsicles. He quit his banking job. Popsicle hustler. Yeah, when you put it that way. Yeah, uh, no, it- but, but but when you look into it, what I, what you're, what you're amazing is that you're taking something as simple, like, as a popsicle, and you're adding these layers of meaning and uh, relevance and context around this. And just starting with that design, that iconic design, honestly, it was the design that I probably saw on Instagram that that it, it, I remembered because you can't forget it once you've seen it. It is so unusual for a, for a dessert to be designed that way. Felt the same way <laughs> three and a half years ago. And uh, and initially, I'll tell you what people told us to change the shape. You mm-hmm. met, you asked about co-packing. Co-packers can't make the product, mm. so that's why we were vertically integrated and and manufacture in downtown LA. The amount of investors, friends, family, colleagues, people in food and beverage that are like love the idea. Go to this co-packer. Just make it a traditional moon shape. You know, make it bigger. It's too small. Add another thing to the top of it. Um, that would have killed the integrity of the product. Mm. We would not be talking. I wouldn't still be in business. If yeah. I just did a moon-shaped popsicle, threw it on a shelf three years ago, we would be done. <laughs> so. so when did you decide that you needed to develop your own brand and then, yeah, doing these parties and, and providing a platform for native advertising for all these exciting brands was, was good and probably helped you get started and allowed for some cash flow? And it sounds like you were sort of bootstrapped in the beginning. Uh, when At what point did you... Did you say, well, no, we need to we need to have our own identity and be dream pops and not just be the ice cream through which other people slap their logo on? I think myself and co-founder DC, we, we started to get a little tired. I, mean, I kid you not, we're probably doing an event every other week and myself mm-hmm. showing up. It's a lot of work. You set up the event. We brought the freezers. We bring the pop-up bar. Um, so one, exhausting ourselves with as many events as we could possibly do to just continue generating cash flow was one. Um, on top of that, you know, I think... We both just realized: Are we in the mar- are we a marketing agency, or are we <laughs> are we a food and beverage company? And what's mm-hmm. the long term goal here? And so, I think it took us about a year of just popping up, getting people's feedback, and then, as I said, everyone's like, "Where can we buy these?" You know, it was a natural progression mm-hmm. of people asking us, "We'd like to purchase this. Where can we get it?" Yeah, and at that point, now you were 
I guess you just built your marketing buzz and those events were a good starting point to get you to, uh, to, to get people to even ask for the product. But now you find yourself playing in the, the, the frozen dessert category, um, which obviously you did some of your research in the beginning, which even led you to discover this product. What was the next step? Like, how did you, did you raise a, a round, a seed round at that point? How did you decide to go into this next phase where, and what was the, I know you did e-commerce. Yep. Do you still do e-commerce? We do. We do. It's not as big of a, you know, a percentage of the business, but yeah, so I will explain to you kind of, uh, it's end of 2017. We have like great momentum. We're building this brand and I'm happy to kind of dive into what I was, what we were thinking uh, as the next logical step. Um, so I'm a student of founders, entrepreneurs, direct-to-consumer companies, and also just every food and beverage founder. I try and listen to as many stories as possible. Obviously, love your podcast, but others, you know, as well. And I'm, I just feel like the amount of the more you can listen to what these founders have done, um, it's it's a lot of pattern recognition, and it's a lot of the same mistakes that happen. So, um, you know, in our mind, I'm like, okay, people really want this product. Um, I didn't, I wasn't excited about retail, and I think. Um, you know, to just frankly, I, I was a bit ignorant and I thought that, you know, what, we need to go all in on direct to consumer. Just the direct to consumer hype was so big and I loved what Daily Harvest was doing. And I'm like, man, I think we can be the Daily Harvest of ice cream. And so um, while, yes, we're building up this momentum, our team really decided, OK, let's build this e-com direct to consumer site. Let's own ice cream and frozen logistics. And we had these lofty ops, uh, aspirations of becoming this massive frozen D2C company. And, you know, went all in on that, built the site, hired a developer, raised a little bit of funding, not too much, as much as we really would need. And we built this amazing Shopify site, got the content locked and loaded. We launched in April of 2018. Um, and to be frank, you know, we started to get a lot of press. Um, the product was moving online. It was great. And then we started to use a little bit of paid spend. And then we started to get a feel for what it was really like to fulfill hundreds of orders out of our factory in Frozen. A few things that came to mind, and this is all part of the journey, is Frozen logistics are really, really challenging. You know, you got product that's arriving on people's doorsteps. If they don't grab it in one to two days, boom, <laughs> done, melted, need to send them, uh, you know, another another case of pops and we have one opportunity for our customer to you know want to you know continue purchasing product and be a real lifetime value oriented customer so frozen logistics were really challenging Two, uh the price point we had to price up because of the expensive nature of paying for you know frozen shipping from the west coast to the east coast and optimizing that through fedex ups etc and then realizing that, you know, our, our CACs, our cost of acquiring the customers, we're not going to fall down enough for this to really be an endeavor that we wanted to scale aggressively. And so what I will say is really quickly, about three and a half months in, we said, look, uh, we have X amount of capital left. We need to be really thoughtful here. Do we want to take this thing to the next level D to C? Or, or, wait, or wait a second, are we going to look at all the data, all the feedback? People love this product, but A, we're outpricing them. The CAC is too high. D to C is far too big of a challenge. We don't have enough capital to scale this realistically. Boom, we need to make an aggressive decision and scale and pivot to retail. And so that's when, you know, in August of, uh, of, of 18, brought on a head of sales, Siraj Bajwani, circled up with our group of investors that we had at that point. And we're like, guys, uh, we need to make a pivot here and go all in on retail because people love this product, but we're outpricing them and we're adding more obstacles that are, you know, really barring people from enjoying how incredible this product is. And that takes... Uh... It takes some self-awareness. <laughs> it takes some reflection because I think it's tempting. And, and lately there have been a few success stories with D2C. Uh, and it is tempting for everyone. Of course, if you can own that customer experience and if you can just sort of uh, sidestep the the retail madness that, that is the retail madness, uh, you can make, you know, you can have higher margins. You can It can be a pretty good business. But in your case, you're dealing with a frozen product, which I think is is you you can underestimate how important a point that is because if it melts, it's gone, it's finished. You, and especially you've got this unique design and all of it going for yourself that it just doesn't make. I I can easily see why you naively went into it thinking 
you could get it done. And the question was, did you get out of it in the right time? And, and how quickly could you pivot out of it and then start to focus on on retail? And it sounds like that transition has been, how's that transition been? So it sounds like it must have been a challenge in the beginning. Yeah, it was the best decision we could have ever made. I think that's a naivete as, you know, I was in business school, you read all these case studies, you read the headlines, everyone wants to build the next away, Casper, <laughs> Warby, like we all want to build that next D2C hero brand. And so that's where my our naivete was, wait a second, we don't need to fit that mold. Like where is the consumer? Where is the real business model? Doing that saved the company, took this thing to the next level. And, you know, I kid you not, myself, Siraj, David Cohen, we went door to door to every indie in Southern California, you know, knocking on doors, trying to get people to give us a shot. Um, I will give a shout out. Bristol Farms, you know, camped out to try and get the buyer to give us a shot. They're the first retailer to believe in us. They were our first anchor retailer, which opened up the doors to, you know, we, as I said, end of last year, we're in about 15 grocery stores and Bristol Farms came on board in February. We're now in about 405 and we plan on being close to about 1500 next year. And without them, Whole Foods has been an incredible partner for our growth. Um, you know, Lassen's, Erewhon, these incredible retailers that believed in us. We changed the packaging. We went from a 10-pack trade to a single and a four-pack. You know, we were iterating and trying to figure out a uh, the product market fit as quickly as possible. And we got blessed with a little bit of luck and the product started to perform. And, uh, you know, it went live with UNFI and some distributors in, uh, in March. And uh, now I'm really excited about with where we're at. Yeah. And so have you raised around since then and so the question that i have really is you said you have your own manufacturing facility but now as you get into retailers you're going to have to amp up that production yep uh it's not going to be cheap so how have you tackled that problem yeah so over the course of the last three years we've raised small bridge rounds to just keep the lights on keep the business going and then uh most recently you know, have raised a round of funding to assist with scaling retail and scaling our manufacturing. You know, we're about 5Xing our capacity. We just moved into a new factory in downtown LA. Um, we're 5Xing our capacity in the next month, and then we're actually 15Xing our capacity um, in the next six months. So that's a challenge in and of itself. Um, I think I have so much respect for other entrepreneurs who are vertically integrated and own their supply chain. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to, to, you know, and not to knock people who co-pack because it's challenging as well. Um, but to market a brand and, you know, it's one thing to market a company in retail locations and sell it direct to consumer, et cetera. It's another entire uh, battle to own your manufacturing and supply chain, have workers that are manufacturing six days a week, um, and and really pioneer a new manufacturing method that has never existed. And so let's talk about your brand. Let's talk about what your consumers or your customers really like about it. Because at this point, you've been around for about two or three years. Uh, most people have probably discovered, like myself, only discovered or tried your product in the recent past because it's finally in retail. What do they love about it? What do your diehard fans have to say about the product? And for someone listening who obviously who hasn't tried it, uh, whether they like ice cream or not, whether they're like me who has never bought ice cream for the last 10 yeah. years and then buys Dream Pops one day, um, what is it that, well, yeah, what are the key things about the product? Yeah, so, you know, the fact that it's 100% plant-based, we'll never use animal products or dairy products is huge. Um, I think there's no question we're trying to create uh, an alternative or a substitute to people who would typically enjoy their Magnum, their Hagen dazs something that you eat a quick, you know, an ice cream indulgence and you feel good after, but you've also satisfied your sweet tooth. Um, I do see us as a frozen, uh, a functional frozen snack. Um, you know, we're low in sugar, so we're always, with coconut sugar, we're less than five uh, grams of, of coconut sugar. We're always 100 calories. We're typically ranging from 60 to 90 calories. Um, and then we like to infuse our products with superfoods and or adaptogens. So baobab, which is an African superfruit high in antioxidants, is in some of the skews. We put lion's mane, um, which is an adaptogen, great with to, to boost cognitive function and help with anti-inflammatory needs. That's in all of our chocolate bars. Uh, then we put ceremonial matcha in our matcha vanilla matcha pops. And, uh, and we do have a, a coffee, coconut latte pop, which is pretty popular as well. Your product is definitely a premium product that's more targeted to 
uh, an older dem. I wouldn't say an older, but I would say a youth of eighteen to thirty-five, largely female demographic. Totally. I'm assuming based yes. on the branding and everything. Totally. Uh, but popsicles is something that all kids love too. Yep. So, how how are you planning to? eventually get into that space. Exactly. So, uh it's priced competitively between 4.99 and 5, you know, 5.99 at most retailers. Um initially and this was a problem with D2C is we'd outprice the trial. So people would not try the product because it was too expensive. And I think that that's another issue that some CPG brands fall victim to. They'll outprice their customer, they'll kill the ability to try to have consumers actually test it, and then they aren't able to build a brand for America. I mean, mind you, some people want to build lifestyle brands and smaller, uh, you know, businesses, which is totally fine. But our goal is to actually be a brand for all Americans to live in every American household. And so that's where you can replace your traditional ice cream novelties. Back to your question. Um, you know, our current super fans are really, yeah, you know, new moms who are looking for cleaner ice cream indulgences and snacks for their kids. Um, instead of buying, you know, some of the sugar heavy dairy products, they see, oh, wow, I can actually have my daughter eating lion's mane. Um, which is, you know, it's great from a functional perspective. It gets that it's sweet enough mm -hmm. that it still seems like a treat. But at the same time, they're getting superfoods or adaptogens. They're not eating too much product. And then one of the most fun parts about the actual product is it typically takes about four to five times the amount of time to melt. So it doesn't melt like a traditional cane sugar popsicle and you have a pool of ice cream and a girl, you're a girl or boy covered with ice cream all over their face. Uh, the way that the product melts, um, it's, you know, it takes about 35 to 45 minutes until it, it melts. So... Yes. Mess, mess free is a nice functional benefit. Yeah. And then are you planning to um, eventually... So what's next? I mean, do you do uh, different molds? I mean, I can... Yeah. If you want to target kids, you can obviously do dinosaur shaped. Uh, yep. It's kind of been done, but uh, <laughs> maybe not in the popsicle space. But um, yeah, so where do you go from here? Right now, you kind of are this, this interesting little brand that... Uh, it is kind of has this aspirational quality to it that that there's something about that I can't I keep going back to the design there's something about it that just you it's memorable now how do you go beyond that without losing that 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 it factor that you have right now totally so so when people ask what are we building um you know I in my mind, what I see us as the broader vision is this Willy Wonka of vegan and plant-based confectionery. And so, yes, you know, the first product we targeted was the Popsicle. And that's like an American classic. And we've tried to reimagine and, and kind of reinvent that American nostalgic classic. In many ways, the same way that a Beyond or an Impossible or a Just are targeting staples like alternative meats and proteins, we're targeting nostalgic desserts. So yes, a Popsicle is our first product, but anything that is a nostalgic dessert that we've con been conditioned to love and really enjoy is fair game. And we have a few things in R&D that aren't even, some aren't even in the frozen aisle. So in my mind, if we can reimagine desserts with a plant-based approach that's still, you know, affordable um, and aspirational, then I think that there's a really exciting opportunity. Uh, if you look at the big confectionery players, if you're going to build a confectionery platform brand um, from day one, that is kind of our thesis and our goal um, with where we stand. Yeah, and if you think about what you've done, I, I was really um, trying to break this down, and I actually wrote it down because I... The more I started to do research about what you've done so far, as well as the way you've approached the product, there's I look at it as having multiple layers, uh, where on the surface, yes, it's just a popsicle, but you've got the health thing. It's it's healthier. You've got the snackability of it. So it's a snack. The taste, which is unique um, because of the ingredients. The design, of course, which we talk, we talked a lot about. And then you've got this brand right you've 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 um, done an amazing job starting with those collaborations right in the beginning and now you're in retail how do you still do those collaborations how do you keep that story going how do you keep this mission that you are on to sort of redefine the frozen dessert category for the future how do you keep telling that message and that story through your packaging, through your social media, through content? What are you doing now? Maybe it's more events. Yeah. 
I think we've just scratched the surface with what's really feasible in the collaboration space. Like we did a loci bracelet, which is, you know, an, an, an exciting collaboration that wasn't even ice cream. You know, mm-hmm. we created a co-branded loci bracelet um, on National Ice Cream Day this year. We're talking to other folks outside of the ice cream space to really create culturally relevant moments that with brands that align with our values. So that's number one. Um, and creating content around them. And people love these, you know, very limited edition but thoughtful collaborations. When you just launch a collaboration and don't really put a lot of thought behind it or strategy, um, you know, the consumer can tell. Um, two is I think, you know, it's it's in the slogan. You know, our slogan is anything is popsicle. And so... Um, the ability to transcend beyond just a frozen fruit pop and have that extend across categories, across disciplines, um, and really across industries. You know, we've worked with tech companies. We've worked with artists. We've worked with musicians. Um, you know, don't be surprised if you see we, who knows, maybe we launch a, you know, a mute, like an, a single or a track. I like music. <laughs> I think that food and beverage brands, companies in general are now content companies. And so the importance is how do you keep your community excited to keep coming back? What can you do to really push their imagination and their loyalty to you and your longer term and broader term vision? I think someone that's done a great job of this is in the last few decades is seeing the way Starbucks and Howard Schultz built his brand. You know, they were selling music in store. They created the third place between work and home. So how can food and beverage companies transcend just selling a food product? and create content that's meaningful, that provides value to their customers, a healthier product in the hands of more people, an alternative to certain bad habits that might not be beneficial for them, and something that, you know, we say this is, you know, all the time, like Dream Pops are one small step toward a plant-based future. They're a little bit of, you know, what maybe one thing you can rotate into your daily consumption habits that'll make you a little bit better off over time. Like I think as a child, um, when I used to eat, you know, and this is probably why I love popsicles. <laughs> I used to eat the, the SpongeBob ice cream pop with bubblegum eyes. You know, you name the the sugar-heavy treat, popsicle company, etc. Um, I ate probably thousands of those. And so if you're eating thousands of something over the formative years of your life, if you could eat something a little bit healthier, there's got to be some sort of a net impact in doing that. Yeah, 100%. I think, um, I think it requires you to be much more than... Um, of a CEO of a food company, a CPG brand. It's almost it, not only a redef- you have to redefine a category, you have to sort of think outside the box and redefine how someone would grow a food business. And I love the Starbucks example because you're you're totally right on that. I mean, on the surface Starbucks is a is a coffee chain. What they actually did and built was way more than that. It was an experience. And in that experience you have these these um, these interactive um, elements to it that that further uh, improve the brand, that increase the story of the brand, uh, that complement the brand, but yet are not core to the brand, and that the brand still stands beyond that. The product still speaks, hopefully speaks for itself. In the case of Starbucks, I think they ended up doing a little too much on yeah, some of, of the course. other stuff where they almost lost their way in coffee. That's just my opinion. I'm a bit of a coffee snob. No, but, me, uh, me too, man. Totally get it. So, <laughs> so, the, so for you, it's like I, I like the way that you know you put brand and content and story and experience front and center, and it's sort of how you got started with those collaborations as as looking as, hey, we've got this blank canvas uh, in a beautiful shape. What can we do with it? And and how can we build some sort of a aspirational experience around it. So I just think that stuff is is companies are going to have to think about that in this crowded competitive world of food and beverage and frozen desserts. Uh, tomorrow when every and I and I've said this before too is tomorrow when 80% and of course this is an aspiration too when 80% of the products on the market are all better for you products all mostly plant-based. How are you going to stand out? The only thing that's going to make you stand out is beyond packaging is, yes, design and all of that. But who are you? What's the story? What's that feeling that someone gets when they see your product? And what's that that feeling they get when they consume it? And, and what does it mean to them? And what, it, what does it stand for? That 
has longevity. I mean, you even said, you know, when we were talking earlier, when you think of the initial iterations of Beyond or Impossible or some of these massively successful global businesses, the consumer is investing with their hard-earned dollars because they believe in the vision. And if there's no vision behind there are a lot of products that, like, amazing product, incredible, tastes great, but, like, humans crave narrative and meaning. And so trying to take something as insignificant as a popsicle and have broader meaning um, is kind of the goal here and to kind of inspire. So, And in terms of broadly, when you look at the, the entire food system and what's happening in the food industry right now, you are, you know, one amongst many sort of innovative, outside-the-box thinkers uh, who, are, who are really pushing the envelope when it comes to what food can be. Um, and it, and it's, you know, it's beyond just food. Where do you see this all leading up to? And I, I, I give the year 2050, it's about you know, 30 years from now when we'll be about nearly 10 billion people on the planet. We're 7.5 or 6 right now. And there's, you know, obviously on this, this podcast, I talk about all the many reasons why we need to transform our food system from a sustainability standpoint, from a human health standpoint as well. And, yeah, you're you're yeah, you're just a popsicle company at the moment. You're yep. just a frozen dessert company, but people buy dessert. I mean, if you walk to a grocery <laughs> store, you look at the amount of ice creams out there, it's ridiculous. And I'm saying I'm saying that jokingly because I barely walked down that aisle and when I did, uh I did find something. And so when we've transformed that aisle into like look at what's happened in the dairy aisle, right? It's transformed majority of the products are now plant-based. What kind of future do you envision when when you succeed, when you build this, um, as you put it, Willy Wonka of uh, frozen dessert companies, uh, and and when Impossible and Beyond, and everyone is super successful, and and Dream Pops is still standing thirty years from now? What does that food system look like? Yeah, I mean the food system itself. That's a you know an interesting question. Um, I've seen a lot of the most radical innovation in food and beverage coming from good old American manufacturing. You know, I see really impressive founders who are vertically integrated that blow me away. Um, you know, Ashley Thompson from Mush, incredible rock star with, uh, you know, her overnight oats mm-hmm. and Mush. Um, and, you know, I, I there are a number of great case studies. I'm not going to like, you know, name a laundry list, but I think there's this transition back to manufacturing as something that that next generation of manufacturing locally, which is kind of special and where most of that real innovation in food and beverage is coming from, because at the end of the day, there are only so many co-packers and they can only really marginally innovate when you have the same products and the same people sharing a shelf that all use the same co-packers. So I think in the food system, there's a transition back to that next generation of manufacturing and owning that entire supply chain, which gets me really excited because that means more jobs for local communities and those respective people, you know, even the people that we employ to manufacture our product, that gets me really excited every day because, to be honest, you know, before um, my priorities were a lot different in the finance world. And so being able to make some sort of an impact net-net is exciting. Um, Two, you know, I think that, yes, there's a lot of, there's an influx of capital going into creating better for you products and categories. I do think it'll, ha- it's the best time to be an American consumer. Um, and that'll have a great impact on the health and wellness of people who are looking for better choices and to alter their diets. I do think we're going to hit a level of, you know, over innovation, which arguably is happening now. And I do think some of these companies are being built for the wrong reasons. And so that's something to think about in the next few decades is why are you really doing this? Is it for pure financial arbitrage? Is it chasing headlines? Or is there something a little bit more powerful you can do at the infrastructure or at the foundation of what you're building? Um, And so, yeah, I think, look, I I have this grandiose vision. I think you have to have, um, you know, a guiding light and a really large goal. Um, I love to create the ice cream shop of the future. I think there's a lot that you can do in brick and mortar ice cream. Um, I loved what I've seen happen. A lot of inspiration I take or we take from Press Juicery and Juice Served Here and Juice Press and what happened with the juice revolution. It's my big bet that there's about to be a massive resurgence in frozen just because of the way nutrients can kind of, um, you know, be passed on through frozen, frozen foods and maintained for longer. But most, more importantly, frozen food can last for over a year. Um, and so the ability to have, um, you know, much longer shelf life allows for a lot of flexibility and logistics and, and what's really feasible. So 
David, you're proof that anything is popsicle. So Thanks, I appreciate no. <laughs> the time today. <laughs> uh, and, and can't wait to see what you do next with Dream Pops. Thank you so much for having me. It really it means a lot. And uh, you know, I appreciate you allowing us to, to share, share the vision. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.